Hey friends, if you wish you weren't hearing an ad right now, then straight after you listen to this episode, head over to curiositystream.com slash not overthinking. For less than $15 a year, you get access to thousands of high quality documentaries on CuriosityStream, and you'll also get a special link to our podcast feed with all of the ads taken out. I don't know, it's easy to say and hard to do, right? And everyone will have a slightly different experience, slightly different perspective on um, what's right for them. But I've, I would say, you know, try not to to compare yourself go for the goals that feel meaningful to you versus the goals you see other people going for because the worst thing you could possibly do in life is strive to achieve someone else's definition of success and only to arrive there and realize that it's not yours my name is ali i'm a doctor and youtuber i'm taymor i'm a data scientist and writer and you're listening to not overthinking the weekly podcast where we think about happiness creativity and the human condition Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of Not Overthinking. Uh, this is yet another in between episode. Um, it's a very good one. It's a conversation that I had with my mate John O'Nolan a few weeks ago. Now, John is the founder of a company called Ghost, and Ghost is the platform that I use and I have been using for my website for the last like five years. Um, and John is very interesting because he lives as a digital nomad. Um, he's initially from the UK, but now he travels the world, living wherever he wants really, and runs Ghost as an entirely remote company. Um, and they've been doing this since way before remote working was cool and hip. Now, in this episode, we talk about the idea of traveling the world and living life from a backpack, from a suitcase, without having a fixed abode, as it were. We talk about the idea of happiness and why John has kept his company deliberately small and why he structured it to be a nonprofit so that he never gets tempted to sell the company and take a big payout. And I ask John for lots of advice about how to make friends while traveling abroad and how to avoid lifestyle creep. Just before we get started, this episode is very kindly brought to you by Brilliant. Yes, Brilliant is a returning sponsor. If you haven't heard by now, Brilliant is a fantastic online course learning platform that has courses on maths, science, and computer science related topics. These are widely considered some of the best ways to learn these kind of subjects. And Tamor's kind of maths friends all regard Brilliant as being a very legit way of learning mathematical concepts in a way that's very different to the way you're taught in school. Because when you learn maths in school, it's very procedural. It's very like, do this, then that, then this, and that. Whereas the way that Brilliant teaches maths is apparently a much better foundation for university level stuff, where you actually understand the theory and the abstract concepts behind how maths works. They've got fantastic courses in computer science as well. I've been using them to learn how to program in Python. They have a Python for beginners and a Python for intermediate type course and also how to learn about the basics of algorithms and machine learning so if any of that sounds up your street then head over to brilliant.org forward slash not overthinking and the first 200 people to visit that link uh, from this podcast will get 20 percent off the annual premium subscription that is brilliant.org forward slash not overthinking anyway enough of that let's get on to the episode hello everyone welcome to this episode of the deep dive featuring john O'Lonan. Uh, sorry john O'Nolan. oh i nearly got that perfect <laughs> i've got these new braces which are kind of giving me a bit of a lisp i got them yesterday and now I'm having to talk slowly because apparently for a few days <laughs> they they give you this lisp. <laughs> so venting in period. Apologize, uh, apologies if I sound weird uh, compared to the last time we spoke. But yeah, thanks for thanks for joining us on on the show. Can you give us a quick intro for yeah. the people in the chat who might not know who you are and kind of what is it you do? How did how did we come here? Sure, absolutely. Um, I am the founder of Ghost uh, Ghost.org, which is a publishing platform for modern independent open source publishing and uh, that's what you use to power your personal site and blog and uh, newsletter as of lately and um, yeah I've, I've been working in web design technology for about uh, just over a decade started ghost about seven years ago 
And um, that's grown from a tiny little three-person company into what's now a 22-person startup that's being used uh, by all sorts of people all over the world. So if you've seen um, nice modern publications, there's a high chance one of them was powered by Ghost. And we power things like OpenAI, um, DuckDuckGo's blog, some of Apple's blogs, uh, Tinder's, uh, all sorts. You can see them on our on our site. So. Uh, that's that's the very short version. I guess we can probably go into some <laughs> details later, probably. Yeah, absolutely. Hang on. So I want to show Google Chrome. Don't zoom in. Why isn't this working? Ah, I understand. Um, yeah, I've just got the Tinder blog up <laughs> on a on a screen. So so that's powered by uh, that's one of the older ones. Yeah, I think OpenAI is is probably OpenAI.com. The whole site is one of the better looking ones. Um, and then there's a bunch more. But OpenAI have a particularly talented uh, design team who are yeah. also extremely good front-end developers. <laughs> it looks very, very pretty. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I'm just having a look through it right now. So uh, how how are they using Ghost? Are they using Ghost as, like, the back-end, or, like, what's what's their setup here? Uh, for OpenAI, they started with Ghost just powering the blog section of the site, mm. and uh, then after about a year, they switched over, and, and now Ghost powers the entire, the whole site, front to back. So the front-end's a Ghost theme, uh, the back-end is, is Ghost Admin, and they've just used a lot of really creative techniques to be able to do um, pretty advanced stuff in terms of how they're presenting uh, different types of content. Because obviously they've got lots of research-heavy um, posts uh, where they kind of examine AI and ML learning models. And they've got quite a few interactive charts and graphs that they've managed to get in there in um, creative ways. Hmm. But definitely pushing the outer limits of what you can do with Ghost. It's a good example of that. And so why are they using Ghost rather than kind of build, building their own system or using alternatives like a sort of I, I know the whole like flat flat file cms thing is big these days like what do, what do you think are the advantages mm-hmm. of ghost kind of in a obviously you're, you're going to be biased but like why would a company like this use <laughs> use ghost rather than wordpress for example yeah so um there's lots of reasons not to use wordpress when it's a larger company the most prominent two are performance and security which tend to just be recurring nightmares uh so for companies that don't want to use WordPress, particularly for something that's publication-focused, uh, they could consider rolling their own thing using flat file CMS. Um, most people underestimate how much work that is, how many features don't exist by default, how much stuff they will have to build. And uh, it seems like an interesting sort of uh, challenge, programming challenge that is not that hard at first, like building a to-do app. Um, <laughs> but like all of these classic programming examples... The first 10% is not hard at all. It's very easy to get a post that appears on a URL and uh, you know you, you put a markdown file in and it spits it out with a template. That part's easy. But everything else, you know, then um, people want scheduling posts, then they want AMP, then they want RSS feeds, then they want uh, multiple people to be able to edit posts and have permissions that are different per person. And the further down that rabbit hole you go, uh, the more you realize it's actually a fairly complex piece of software that you need. And so uh, what happens a lot when larger publishers start looking around uh, technology options and they want something that's going to be very secure, very fast, and where they don't have to reinvent the wheel to build a robust okay. publishing system, then they uh, they stumble upon us quite often. Yeah. And so on the security front, this is something I've never quite understood because everyone says that WordPress has issues with security, but like, what does that actually mean in real life? Like, I, I I still have a ton of old WordPress sites. Are they liable to get hacked? Like whatever that means. Like how does security work in this kind in this context? Yeah, the uh, the short answer to that is yes. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> the, the longer answer is it depends. Um, 
common misconception is that WordPress itself is insecure, which is not actually true. Um, and just for context, before I worked on Ghost, I was the deputy head of design for WordPress. So I've, I've worked on WordPress core for many years. I'm very, very familiar with it. And WordPress itself is, is reasonably secure, despite the shortcomings of um, PHP and that kind of older architecture. But where it falls apart is plugins. And plugins can be built by anyone. They're not necessarily maintained. They don't have a, a review process, you know, like Apple or Google and Android. Right. Uh, they just exist, and you can install install as many plugins as you want, and most people install tons. And then, you know, you don't update them because updating plugins breaks your site. And plugins typically are the number one uh, vector through which all security problems with WordPress happen. And uh, so if you ever see database connection could not be established on yeah. a site that you normally visit or... Uh, some dodgy looking links and hacksaw material. Yeah. Uh, that's almost always plugin vulnerability that has been exploited. Uh, can also be themes sometimes, but typically plugins. Okay. And I guess for Ghost, because you don't have the option of other people adding plugins, does that automatically just solve a big chunk of the security woes? Yes. Um, two parts. That plus uh, Ghost is written in more modern technology. It's Node.js rather than PHP. Um, the entire stack it's built on is just a lot uh, newer and has a lot of security features built in from the very, very okay. base, as it were. So, um, on 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 the PHP front, a lot of so when I was kind of doing reasonably extensive coding a few years ago to build like a, a question bank software, we used Laravel uh, with PHP as like the backend, and that seemed to work really well. Um, and I kept on coming into this debate of, and and often I get this question: people say, you know, how how do I start to learn how to code? And I always say, well, you know, it's pretty reasonable to start with HTML and CSS because you can learn those within like a few days and you can play around with it. And then what do you learn next? I, I often say JavaScript slash Python slash PHP, and I'm n never quite sure what angle to kind of officially recommend someone down. Like, what do you what do you think about that? Yes, the proper answer is it depends on what you're trying to build, mm. and there's different programming languages that are suited to different things. Um, usually, most people don't need that level of nuance, and my personal opinion is uh, the best possible stack you can choose, particularly if you're working on your own or maybe with one other person, you're just getting started, uh, maybe you're just learning coding, is actually PHP and Laravel. I think, hands down, you can build the most complete um, app with the fewest resources, the fewest people, mm. Um, in PHP and Laravel and get started as fast as possible. There's lots of other routes you can go. Um, but Laravel, I don't know if you've seen laracasts.com. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like that's I spent like hours yeah. and hours on that every day in like 2016. <laughs> yeah, and Jeffrey's screencasts are just unbelievably yeah. good. They're so, so good for learning programming, particularly if you once you've gotten past the HTML and CSS point and you just want to dig into PHP, the way he teaches, I find, mm. um, very, very accessible. And you can do tons with Laravel. <clears throat> Yeah, I first came across it in my, I think, third year of med school when I was building this question back thing. And just like my mind exploded as to, oh my God, this is amazing. And then during like my yeah, lunch yeah. breaks, I'd sit at my desk and just watch Jeffrey's thingies on Laracast be like, oh, I'm just learning so much stuff here, even when I'm not kind of following it along. And often I'd yeah. kind of build something and then I'd be like, okay, I've run into this problem. Let me see if he's got a solution to this. And then I would sort of unlock the next level of like Laravel, be like, oh, I can now do this thing. And it's just, it was so great. Yeah. Um, so... Okay, let's rewind back a bit. And so, how did you get started? Like, w what did your career look like up until up until you started Ghost? <laughs> kind of like the opposite of yours, I think. Right. <laughs> you know, you you've been very good in uh, education and academia, and um, 
following those those paths of lots of difficult tests i was not good at any of those things at all and um i had a bit of an unusual upbringing my family moved around the world so i I kind of my first language is dutch i grew up in holland first and then we moved to the philippines i lived there for seven years and Mm. um, moved to the uk for the first time when i was i don't know 18 or something dropped out of schools all the way through um, at various points not because um i wasn't able to do any of it but more because it didn't engage me it wasn't a format that type of learning just never worked for me and so i've always just been a bit of a i'm going to do it my way whether that works or not that's my guiding light is always i'm going to do it my own way and that certainly is not compatible with (laughs) exams and uh that phase of life so a bit of a weird start and i originally studied i got myself into uh brighton street modern music eventually studied music figured out i was not going to be a good musician I was surrounded by great musicians, and what I learned from that was that I was not one of them. They were a different type of uh, person. But I was good at making websites for them and helping to promote them. (laughs) So one day, one of my uh, favorite musician friends turned around and said, you know, how much do you charge for a website? And I said, what do you mean? Because I've been been doing them all for free. Like, this is just uh, something I really enjoyed. And they were like, how much do you charge? And I was like, oh, light bulb moment, 100 quid. And they were like, yeah, okay. And uh, that, that was the real penny drop. This is, I don't know, 2006, years and years and years ago. And um, from there, I just, I did more and more freelance work. I went through a couple of agencies. I didn't love that. Um, went through a couple of startups. Then eventually just um, kind of was self-employed and doing freelance web design and more and more WordPress. And uh, WordPress was growing very fast at the time. And at a certain point, I, I thought um, the way I can charge clients more and the way I can um, raise my rates and sort of hit the next level of whatever I'm doing is going to be to work on WordPress. And WordPress is open source. Anyone can contribute or get involved, yeah. help kind of write code or do design for core WordPress. You just have to show up and uh, get involved. So I did. And uh, within a couple of years, I was the the second head of design for that open source working group. And it was around that time that WordPress was really transitioning from its kind of early roots as a, a blogging platform into this monolithic thing that wasn't really sure what it wanted to be but Mm. kind of wanted to be everything and it was at the time it was chasing tumblr since then it it's kind of moved to be chasing uh, squarespace and then shopify and wordpress has kind of just blossomed out of this blogging platform into a do everything website builder and um it was a really interesting time but my all my client work and all the stuff i was interested in was uh, was publishing it was blogging mm. and publishing and when i was building sites for companies it was always their blogs their company blogs and okay. that use case is what i was really familiar with and so that was the kind of weird path that eventually led to the idea of ghost which was what if you rebuilt wordpress and thought only about the publishing yeah. side and tried to do it with great new technology and great design and um just rigorous focus on one use case rather than trying to solve everything okay and so you have this idea that, hey, why don't I make a WordPress alternative that's just focused on blogging? Um, what's kind of going through your mind then? Because surely you're thinking that the world doesn't need another website builder. WordPress is already out there. Presumably at the time, there were things like Weebly and Wix and stuff start, starting up. Like, why, like, what on earth would prompt you to think, you know what, I can actually <laughs> make another website builder and, and, and do it well? Yeah, that's actually exactly what I was thinking. It was spot on. And, um, and so I'd actually, I'd rejected uh, working on this idea for years because mm. um, I thought a it wouldn't work and b it wouldn't be a big enough idea like who wants another blogging platform and uh, clearly I can never build anything that's going to be bigger than WordPress so I'd kind of push this idea to the back of my mind mm. despite it eating away at me for a couple of years of like wondering what would it be like could you do something better could you make it work better um, 
but it didn't go away. The idea just it stuck. And I had always had these ambitions when I was, I don't know, somewhere between 18 and, and 24 of, uh, you know, I want to be a millionaire. I want to be very financially successful. I want to start a business. I want to do very well. Yeah. And so I, the requisite for that in my mind was I needed a, a really big idea. Okay. It couldn't be a small idea and it couldn't be just another blogging platform. Mm. <laughs> and um, then I started traveling full time around 2011. I got rid of my house in the UK again, uh, which I'd only been for a few years and uh, just set off with a backpack around the world. And I was still doing client work and this idea was still eating away at me. But there was something else that was eating away at me, which was that once you sort of sell all your possessions and you have nothing but a backpack, uh, a lot of existential questions creep in because you mm. don't realize how much of your life you spend thinking about what you want to acquire next, mm. whether that's, uh, you know, camera gear, uh, a car, um, new sofa. Uh, you spend a disproportionate amount of time, I, at least I did, researching and thinking about what you want to acquire in your life next. And mm. when you only have a backpack and you can't put anything in it, there's this existential void and everyone goes through it when they uh, when they start traveling or doing the nomad thing of okay, so I can't buy anything. What do I spend all day thinking about? And it all gets very, what's the meaning of life and what are we all doing here? Hmm. And I started, I found myself playing this game a lot. And the game was one I think everyone's played. And it's, what would you do if you won the lottery? Right? Oh, yeah. you, <laughs> you win $10 million or $100 million, whatever amount you want. Um, some wealthy relative dies. You come into a massive amount of money. And what, okay, what do you do now? And in the beginning, that game is really, really fun. Uh, you know, give your boss the finger, pick up a Lamborghini, like do it, go full David Dobrik, buy a yeah. friend's Lamborghinis, um, all the lenses you want, all the yeah. MacBooks you want. <laughs> Easy, right? Okay, well, that'd take about a week. So, okay, what's what's after that? And the, you know, still quite easy. Uh, maybe, I mean, before 2020, maybe you'd go and do a bunch of travel, um, get a house, uh, try and learn some things, maybe start a business, maybe give to charity. Then it gets a little bit harder. Like well, when you've exhausted that, what do you do next? And um, I don't know, uh, invest in philanthropic endeavors. Mm. Um, and what what I figured, I'd get to the end of this game every time and I could figure out that I could go full Grand Theft Auto and spend ludicrous amount of money in one or two years. Mm. But I could figure out that after one or two years, there would be this moment where you'd wake up on a Saturday morning, having done all of the things that you thought that massive amounts of wealth would give you. Mm. And the sun would be shining and the birds would be chirping. And you would have to answer a new question, which is, what do you do now? What do you do with your time, not with your money? And uh, at the time, I would play this game just constantly, and I couldn't figure out the answer, and I found it very frustrating. Um, but I was sitting on a beach one day in the Philippines uh, where I had traveled back to in 2012 to learn to kitesurf, uh, which is something I'd always wanted to do. And I was sitting there with a laptop, hacking away on open source code, uh, WordPress at the time, with some friends I'd just made, watching people kitesurfing in front of me. And the answer I suddenly realized to that question was, I would just do this. This is what I would do. At the end of the wealth tunnel of imagination, I would travel, uh, I would work on stuff I like and care about, and uh, I would have the freedom to do whatever I want whenever I want. And then I realized I was already doing that. And at the time, I was making £25,000 a year, mm. uh, somewhere thereabouts, uh, with very modest salary in, in tech uh, by any stretch of the imagination. And I didn't, it didn't require more than that. It would be great to have more than that. But that completely changed my perspective on what uh, business idea I needed. I no longer needed a billion-dollar idea. I no longer even needed a million-dollar idea. I just needed an idea that I cared enough about to work on it for a really long time and to make at least £25,000 a year. 
And so to go all the way back to your original question, why would I start a yeah. blogging platform? Well, there are so many other blogging platforms because I finally realized I didn't need a big idea. I just needed one that I thought I could do a good job of mm. um, to the tune of moderate success. And I knew that I could achieve at least that. I was confident I could achieve at least that. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I remember last time we talked, you kind of talked about this, uh, if you won the lottery question. And yeah, th this is something that I also think a lot about just like all the time. Uh, just like, what do I, what do I actually <laughs> want to do? And when I was working as a doctor, you know, my instant answer was like, okay, cool. I probably wouldn't work uh, as much, if at all, as a doctor because it wasn't at the time inherently fulfilling and it's not, it's, it's not the sort of thing I would have, have actually wanted to do if I, if I'd won the lottery. And I think, yeah, I'd probably, <clears throat> I'd probably want to learn how to draw and to kind of, uh, mu like produce music. And I'd probably still make YouTube videos just probably, probably at a, uh, kind of less frequently than I currently do. Um, I probably wouldn't make any online courses, but I still want to teach stuff. And so I'd probably do that for free because I wouldn't need any money. And, and so it kind of landed me on this thing of, I enjoy making videos. I enjoy teaching which is kind of basically what I'm doing now. And so it's, it's in a way, it's, it's kind of like a liberating idea of what's, what's the delta between your kind of life when, you won, when you've won the lottery and your life right now. And actually, yeah. are there significant differences between the two? Um, and I think when I first read The 4-Hour Workweek, that kind of turned me onto this idea that actually people don't want to become rich for the money. They want to become rich for the lifestyle that they think it can afford them. And like you said, you know, yeah. you're sitting on a beach in the Philippines on your laptop, <laughs> having just done kite surfing. That's all very eminently uh, achievable with a you know a reasonable reasonable salary it doesn't need to be absolutely huge um yeah as the company has become more successful and as you've made more money how do you stop the lifestyle creep from setting in because <laughs> um, you're living in a pretty fancy ass looking place right now is that one of the artifacts desks that you've got in front of you i don't even know what that is so that should answer <laughs> <laughs> that should answer that you mean this yeah this this is a um i think it was 20 pounds $30 from my nearest Thai uh, office supply store. Oh, no way. I'm in Thailand <laughs> <laughs> right now. Okay. No, I don't. I've got nice um, camera, nice computer, yeah. nice microphone. Those are the things I like. Yeah. I, I guess the simple answer is I still try and keep things to a size that fit in suitcases. I don't mm. own anything that doesn't fit in a suitcase that I can travel with. And that has a, a very good forcing function of uh, avoiding lifestyle creep this is a, a rented house <laughs> and uh up until you know this year i was moving country every three to six months and um spent a lot of time going between vancouver and south africa and thailand and uh bali and yeah. a few places in between and so the the backpack but now suitcase question is a good way <laughs> of keeping some of that a little bit in check okay so i thought you'd bought a place in the philippines or something no 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 renting Renting in Thailand right renting now. Renting in Thailand? Don't own a house anywhere. Oh, and you weren't planning to buy one last time we spoke? No, I'm planning to buy a boat. You might be thinking about oh, that. Oh, yes, that's right. <laughs> uh, okay. What was I called? Floating suitcase. Floating suitcase. <laughs> Why don't you want to... Okay, so uh, there seems to be a bit of a, a debate amongst some bloggers that I follow about kind of the nomad life. Uh, as distinct from the sort of stay in one place, invest in the local community, build a sort of build roots type thing. Uh, and some people say that, well, the nomad thing is fun for a few years and then you get out of your system and then you realize that actually what you want is a stable job. You want to spend time with the kids. You want to kind of have your friends living around you. Like how, how do you think about kind of that balance between wings and, and roots as it were? 
Yeah, it's a good one. Um, I think it's really uh, sort of applies to everything in 2020, really. Um, it's sad how polarizing this question has become. Mm. Um, there's always this, everyone has to agree on the best way. And if you disagree with the best way, you yeah. just don't know yet. Yeah. Uh, I think in, in reality, I know people in both of those camps. I know people okay. who have been doing the nomad thing for 20 years and still love to do it. I know people mm. who've done it for two years and got it out of their system and mm. become sick of it. And um, I know people who've settled and um, they travel for holiday and have never even been uh, remotely interested in doing the nomad thing, despite having the ability to. A lot of the our team members at Ghost, um, which is they're all remote and have been since the start, they've always had the ability to travel. Many just enjoy the freedom of being remote without the travel. So I think it's different for everyone. Um, for me, I sort of grew up moving around. So I really don't have... Um, an internalized personal version of what home is. Mm. Um, you know, I, I moved when I was 10 and again when I was 16 and again when I was 20. Okay. I don't have a, a group of friends that I grew up with in a particular country. So there's nowhere when I think about like, where's home? Where should I settle? It's it's almost the opposite problem. It's I have no idea where home is. I have no idea where I should settle. And the boat is my get out of jail free idea of how can I buy a house but still not be tied to any one place or any one country. Okay, so... What about, so surely you must make friends where you set up shop, like if you're living in Thailand for six months at a time, how do you kind of connect with kind of people? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it's different place to place. Uh, these days, I sort of I have uh, friends that I've known for a long time in lots of different places. So I, I go back to a lot of places. I think that's um, something that happens the longer you do the nomad thing for is you figure out the places you like and you tend to go back there in the seasons when those places are the best. Okay. Um, it becomes less about... Uh, what new exciting thing am I going to explore? Because the most overlooked thing about, you know, quote unquote nomad life is you spend a disproportionate amount of time working. It's mm. not, uh, it's not all travel and fun. So you, uh, you really care a lot more about what it's like to live somewhere than what it's like to explore somewhere. So I, I tend to go back, like I said, between Vancouver, Cape Town, uh, Chiang Mai here in North of Thailand, Bali sometimes. And in those places, over the years, you bump into people, get introduced through friends of friends, like co-working spaces, mm. occasionally at local events, but I don't do those very much. Um, and it's just a, or a organic network, for want of a less buzzwordy term, that uh, that falls out. And then there's, you know, there's the internet, there's Twitter, there's people you follow who figure out that you're nearby and say, hey, do you want to meet up for a drink? And uh, that's probably the most common vector of meeting people that I've never met before. Oh, interesting. Okay. So you feel like you're not kind of losing out on anything social life-wise by being a nomad? No, but I think that's very personal for me because I didn't necessarily have that before okay. becoming a nomad, right? I think okay. uh, people who grew up in, in one place with lots of friends would have a different perspective on that. Okay, interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the things that I have always wanted to try. Um, and now I'm sort of in a position where I can try it, but then 2020 happened and then all of, <laughs> all of this sort of stuff. Um, and so how... How do you get started? Do you just like buy a one-way ticket to, I don't know, some place that seems to be good on Nomad List and just, just like go for it? Or is there, is, there more, <laughs> is there more method to the madness? No, it's, it's literally that. Um, people love to come up with <laughs> great uh, ideas of uh, what you have to do and what it might involve. But no, it really, fundamentally, it's just that. And it's, um, you know, I think you were saying in a, one of your recent videos about moving to the US, there's mm. never a right time for anything. There's mm. never a perfect time for a life change at a certain point. Um, you decide and you go and you find out and it never feels comfortable. Mm. And you either embrace that discomfort and you embrace that risk 
or you are par- you are paralyzed by it and um it's not for you it's not something you enjoy for me it's i do enjoy it i like to push myself i like to find out what i don't know yet and um try new things so yeah uh, buy a one-way ticket is is the advice <laughs> I would give anyone. I mean, there's more nuance to it, right? Like, yeah. a, of course, it's helpful to have a income, which is location independence or something, usually based on the internet. And to have, I I really think you need at least one to $2,000 a month consistent income regularly to make it uh, work. Okay. And at that point, you, you've got to be content with doing it on a kind of budget scale, staying in not fancy, nice places, but... Okay. Uh, looking for looking for deals but it's entirely possible so how 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 much do you need to start staying staying in like a fancy place in like thailand or like in bali like what would like i'm i'm imagining i want to set up shop in like a nice sort of like the place you've got there that will look good on camera as being my main thing uh and everything else is kind of secondary but as long as it looks good on camera then i can set up shop and do my videos (laughs) and stuff yeah i would say once you get over it's this plateau um s curve right once you get over about three thousand dollars a month um you're at the the top end uh anything above that is just gets into ludicrous luxury but you're kind of one thousand dollars a month minimum yeah three thousand uh and up you're in real luxury in asia at least right if you if you're going to vancouver mm. <laughs> three and a half thousand dollars a month gets you a shoebox okay. in uh in downtown vancouver um the slower you travel so the less flights you take yeah. uh, obviously the more affordable it is mm. um particularly long distance flights but that, yeah that's kind of good range i'd say okay and do you just kind of book out an airbnb for like a month at a time or what how how does it work yeah so the secret is airbnb is just awful oh, okay. um avoid airbnb at all costs okay fine <laughs> <laughs> airbnb is the best way to uh get swindled i don't know it's like the early ebay of <laughs> mm. of, of anything you you'll just you'll pay too much they'll they'll bait and switch you on what you think you're getting mm. uh, no the best the best thing you can do is use airbnb for your first three to seven days when okay. you go to a new place yep or a hotel okay. either one something you can book in advance mm. but all the best deals and all the um all the places that where you'll actually find somewhere nice to stay for yeah. an extended period of time they're not on the internet so particularly oh, okay. in bali you will yeah. you will not find like the good houses on the internet okay. you need to show up get a guest house for a week and then start talking to people and say, hey, I'm looking to rent a house for one month, three months, whatever. And then you'll get in touch with local uh, estate agents or people who kind of broker those short-term deals. Hmm. Every country is slightly different. Again, this is more um, Asia-focused. In It's harder when you go to places like Canada or, um, I don't know, Australia, yeah. UK. or They have more less short-term rental options than a lot of places yeah um because i outside. guess like I'm, I'm i'm imagining if i went to an estate agent in london and said hey i want to live somewhere for three months they'd be like ah mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah but i guess it's not, not quite so the much. same in like bali or thailand or the philippines and stuff right yeah okay um so you rock up you live there in an, in an airbnb slash hotel for seven days you find a local estate agent say i'm looking for a cool place and presumably like you tell them I want something that has fast internet and and, still like, and, yeah. and, and they show you around and is, is that how it works? Pretty much. That's pretty much. I mean, every country is a little bit different, but that's, <laughs> that's, that's pretty much how it works. Okay. That yeah. seems remarkably straightforward. Um, okay. In my head, all, all, all of the various barriers to doing this are just kind of slowly being, being whittled away. Um, to what extent? Yeah, the, so yeah. the, the, thing, the thing you, the thing you capitalize on um, is uh, so in comparison to the UK yeah. where you get a let. You put down deposit, uh, you sign gas, electric, hmm. whatever utilities. 
there's all this paperwork that ties you into contracts um, and long-term contracts. Um, doing the short-term let thing, there's there's just none of those. So you you pay what is regarded as a premium compared to what locals would pay to yeah. rent a house, maybe only three months at a time. But everything's included. Or well, there's no utilities. Everything's in there. The house already has internet, and there's no contracts of any kind. So the the biggest shift in terms of your kind of expenditure and administration of lifestyle versus living in the UK versus doing this mm. is there's no contracts, there's no monthly bills. Um, you're just kind of paying as you go on everything. And that makes everything very straightforward because if you don't like something, okay, up and up and change. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, again, that used to be how it was. This year's a little different. <laughs> yeah, quite. Okay. Um, and for everyone, every, everyone in the chat, uh, Angus is going through and kind of collating all of the relevant questions. So if you guys have any relevant questions or any just general questions for me and John, uh, stick them in the chat below and Angus will... Uh, collect them on the notion live blog that we've got going on uh how how have things changed more recently with the covid stuff because you're still doing the travel thing so it seems to be not not affecting you well um the timing in terms of my personal circumstances was very uh lucky mm. um every other year up until this year i've had three month uh lets and visas that are all short term most of the time when you're traveling around you get a, a tourist visa that's somewhere between 30 and 90 days and then you have to leave or you have to apply for a longer-term visa, which is usually complicated and sometimes yeah. expensive. Okay. This year, by sheer coincidence, um, in December, we had taken out a one-year lease on, on this house in Thailand and had applied for a one-year uh, visa to stay in Thailand for a bit longer. And then by January, those two things became very, very, very relevant. Mm. Um, and by February, even more so, and by March, yeah, it was a whole different thing. So uh, it was the one year where we'd planned to stay put and not move around as much. And the timing was extraordinarily lucky for us. Okay. Um, things in Thailand are uh, unbelievable. It's We've had no local transmission in four months. And it's honestly, it's almost like normal again here. It's, it's kind of crazy. The only difference is face masks in shops. Other than that, everything is open. Everything is working. Um is great but i understand very different uh, to most places in the world right yeah. now how how did you decide in a like that this that you wanted to stay put for a whole year kind of is it it would have been quite the departure from your usual kind of three month kind of lifestyle yeah so it's kind of related to uh to buying a boat so i'd had this this dream of um how could i have a home but still keep traveling mm. i think maybe a boat would would be it and so um we put down an order to buy a boat at the end of last year and then decided to stay put, stay in one place, work really hard for the rest of the year uh, whilst waiting to move move on to it Okay, and save all our money, like every single penny we possibly could. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, that was that was the motivation or the, the trigger for it. Okay. So what's your, so have, uh, are you married, living with a wife? Like what's your situation, if you don't mind me asking? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Married. Um, my partner, travels with me also okay. she also works on ghost now she used oh. to work for other startups remotely yeah. um but now we work together and that makes logistics a lot more straightforward oh, nice. uh, how do you guys meet <laughs> uh three friends of friends over a okay. decade ago um and then the timing was never quite right until eventually one day it was and uh yeah okay and did you know kind of upfront that she was also into the whole kind of traveling forever type vibe or was that a, Not necessarily. a case you had to make for it? No. <laughs> I think she she always had uh, the travel bug. Not necessarily travel forever bug. But then mm. as uh, Digital Nomad things started to take off, I started doing it um, about five or six years before her. 
and um, it was always something she wanted to do and was working towards. And she started off working in UK agencies doing marketing and then yeah. started working for startups and then remote startups and then got to the point where she could do it as well. And um, that's where our paths kind of oh. converged. Oh, nice. Is that weird at all, like you technically being her boss? <laughs> you would think um, it is. In practice, it's actually not. It's quite easy. Uh, you get good at it, I think, just at separating those those two different parts of your life. Okay. Um, I mean, if you have people who you are friends with, but you also work with, yeah. but it's you know it's similar. You just draw those lines of what well, now we're in one mode, now we're in another uh, mode of interaction. And, okay. Um, so like you'd message each other yeah. on Slack rather than iMessage, for example. <laughs> in a, yeah, well. absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and I've uh, you know there's quite a few team members that goes to I consider very close friends as well, and it's the same setup. Like we. Uh, social messages and non-work messages go in telegram and okay. uh, anything to do with work goes in slack and try not to have those overlap and okay cross no that's that seems to make sense um what's <laughs> how, what's the uh kind of tax stuff around having a kind of location independent company and to what extent can you business expense all of your stuff uh, i'm asking very self selfishly here so <laughs> <laughs> um so there's so many different answers to this question. The, sh the short answer is it's massively complicated and it totally depends on um, your citizenship, residence, where you've been tax resident for the last few years, uh, how long you're going to stay in each place, how long you've been where you are now, um, how many different passports you are have, mm. whether one of those passports is American. Um, like all of these things completely, completely change the answer. And it's it's kind of it's very specific to every individual person as to what the assessment's going to be. Uh, for... There's not really expense-wise that doesn't really work um, <laughs> unless you can sort of really claim that you're traveling for meetings yeah. and you, there's a direct tie. Um, I don't do any sort of deductions or things or try and uh, mess with anything like that. Just try and keep it as simple as possible. As a UK citizen, when you leave the UK, regardless of what you do, if you're going to go and live in the US, for example, um, after you have been out of the country for a full year, you can apply to deregister uh, for tax. And then after that point, you have to re-register in whatever country you are staying generally over 180 days in, plus based on whatever laws and yeah. things that they have going on. Um, that gets very, very complicated and massively depends uh, okay. for country to country, how long you're staying, how long you're not. Okay. Um, okay. So being a UK citizen is an advantage. I will say it's much more complicated if you're Canadian, American, um, German, all of those have uh, a lot more difficult judicial systems when okay. it comes to tax. And, and where is Ghost the company registered? Presumably in the US. In Singapore. In, in Singapore? Yeah. Rogue, why, why yes. Singapore? <laughs> Uh, so if you want to find, if we sort of think about countries for incorporating companies like hosting, hosting yeah. companies and, uh, and the company is the app. So we sort of looked around at what, as a fully remote company, you know, we have customers all over the world. Mm. We have team members all over the world. Uh, there's not one geography that makes sense. We've never had an office anywhere. So if you think about it from that point of view, what's the best country to start a company in where you have access to all of the best financial services in the world, uh, ease of doing business, preferential tax rates, and a great sort of startup scene and access to any any of those um, preferential bonuses or in incentives for startups, things like that. Singapore's okay. top of the list every time. You've got Stripe, you've got TransferWise, mm. you've got um, all the things you need to run a company. But uh, it's pretty unique. I think you have to be really fully, fully remote for that to be the best option. I think for a lot of people, the best option is usually 
start a company wherever you live. Um, yeah. And if that doesn't give you access to the things you need, maybe consider using something like Stripe Atlas to incorporate in the US because then you'll have massive yeah. amount of access to things. Um, the, the weird thing that people don't understand, I think, because I, I get a lot of questions about this is um, the taxation, company taxation and where you incorporate mm. matters a lot less than you think um, because okay. you there's so many other costs that go on. Like for in Singapore, theoretically, tax is much lower than in the UK. Mm. But our payment processor rates are double of what they would be in the UK. Mm. And our banking fees are triple what they would be in the UK. And our accounting fees are 10 times what they would oh, be in the okay. UK. Fine. And uh, it all kind of, in my experience, it all kind of balances out. And a lot of the optimizations are a lot of headaches in return for not nearly as much benefit as most people think when okay. they imagine what it must be like to sort of optimize uh, tax residents for companies or themselves. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Like I've been vaguely thinking because my YouTube stuff is all registered in the UK and 19% corporation tax isn't bad, but it's a bit yep. annoying. And so I was thinking, hey, what if I just lived in Estonia for a year and then set up shop there? <laughs> but I guess it's probably just not worth it in the long run. It's, it's pretty easy to just do everything from the UK. Yes, and all of those loopholes that used to exist are closing anyway. Um, Foreign Controlled Corporations Act, I can't remember, I think it's FATCA. Um, If you are a UK person, you have a business overseas and you are in any way considered to um, have ties to the UK, then the UK will just say, regardless of where that company is incorporated, that is a UK company. It's controlled by a UK individual. Um, You can't claim otherwise. (laughs) Okay, sure. (laughs) And the fact that I have a house here and I'm potentially want to do my medical training here will all be (laughs) factors that really come on mate you're in the uk (laughs) don't be weird about it yeah fine um so because so so is 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 what you do is that you pay yourself a salary from ghost or salary plus dividends or however you however you set it up and then you will treat that as your personal income and then you and the wife will use that to kind of rent out these random places random places in the world yeah okay yeah interesting because I was thinking, one, one thing I was toying with the idea of doing is kind of road tripping around Europe and living in a different city every couple of months. Um, I thought the road trip vibe might be good because then I can literally pack my entire studio into the car and just do it and that would be fun. Um, but I was thinking, yeah. could I get a fancy Airbnb in Paris for a month and call that an expense because technically I'm using it to make videos? Or like, is, is that something that you've kind of thought about? Or <laughs> um, No, I don't think it'll be worth it. Yeah. I think... Um, you know, you save the, you save the seventeen percent, right, of whatever that costs. That's when you expense. That's all you're saving. Yeah, but then also, like you're, if you're I were to take it out as cash, it would be thirty-two point five percent dividend tax, and then nine percent student loan. So that's what it would effectively oh. cut, <laughs> cut it in half. Is what I'm thinking. Okay, you're you're going to have to pay those student loans at some point. So yeah, that's the benefit of being a dropout. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've still got my my sixty thousand to pay off. That's all. Yeah. Uh, my. My best friend, Peter Levels, who's the founder of Nomadist, oh, yeah. is doing exactly what you said uh, right now. He's he's traveling on trains all around Europe. I think he's in Austria right now. Right. And he's still managing to make it work, even even in 2020. That's how dedicated he is to <laughs> to the Nomad course. Um, he would be a good good person to, to talk to. You should see if you can get him on. Oh, yeah, that would be fantastic. I, I've been following his stuff for years, and he's been a big <laughs> inspiration in the whole Nomad life stuff. Um, yeah, and in yeah. the... Um, you know, DIY, business, PHP, make it work, yeah. don't overcomplicate it. That's his thing. <laughs> That's his whole, his whole spiel. Um, so traveling with a backpack around the world, is that, do you think that you, you became interested in that because of the fact that you kind of did it growing up? Or is, is that an experience that you would kind of recommend to a broader swath of people 
than just people who have already done lots of traveling? Um, I think it gives you an interesting perspective no matter who you are and yeah. opens your eyes to um, the way the world works in the in the places and the ways that you don't see in movies or on YouTube or on TV and exposes you to different cultures and different ways of thinking and different um, types of people, which broadens everything. Um, if you, I think, you know, for, for your audience, which is, uh, I think you've got a large percentage of people who are interested in starting businesses mm-hmm. and being entrepreneurs and working for themselves. Um, if you want to have good ideas and different ideas, um, getting out and seeing the world is one of the best ways to understand and get perspective on what types of ideas exist and don't and what things different cultures value and don't and love and hate. And the in the same way that companies can kind of achieve diversity by having people from lots of different backgrounds, you can achieve personal diversity by doing the exact inverse, by exposing yourself to lots of different backgrounds and different cultures makes you a more diverse human being, uh, which I think is an, is a objectively a competitive advantage. You know, you take all the, the cultural things out of it. Um, I think it's a competitive advantage as a human being to have more exposure to different uh, parts of the world and understand how they work. So yeah, broadly, it's an experience I'd absolutely recommend. I think different people get different things out of it and will value it in different ways, depending on where they've come from and their personal experiences. And if you go into it with expectations, I think that's uh, probably applies to everything in life is yeah. probably setting yourself up for disappointment. But going into it with no expectations other than a willingness willingness to learn and um, childhood curiosity <laughs> okay. is, is probably the best way to approach it. Okay. So if we were... If I was chatting to you and be like, all right, John, I want to plan out my kind of backpacky kind of trip. Uh, yeah. The, the the main thing I want to I want to ensure is that the, the the only thing I really need with me is my laptop and my cameras. I'd I'd love to bring a light along, but I guess I can just get one slash rent one wherever I am in the world. So maybe carrying a huge <laughs> ass softbox. I mean, it can pack quite. It, it can pack into like a suitcase, but like maybe traveling with a suitcase it would just be more annoying than traveling with a backpack. Like how how would you suggest I start to plan my plan my trip so <laughs> let me see if i can pull up a photo here you you can you can do some pretty i'm going to show you my setup where i'm doing my video right now you can do some pretty diy works oh nice so my <laughs> my softbox is an led panel with a pillowcase yep and then i've got a, a xiaomi fill light here and yep. i've got a couple of aperture mini battery lights okay yeah and okay it's not an aperture you know 120d or whatever but yeah. it 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 works well enough and it fits in a suitcase. It's like a <laughs> Aperture 120D with the space light extension which I normally use for my videos. <laughs> okay. So you can get you can get weird and wonderful with it. Um, and there's there's a lot of things that will pack down small like all of this will will fit in a suitcase easily enough. Um, what was what was the question before that? So what you start, would have to plan? Yeah, how do I start planning planning my trip? Is it just a case of, you but, know, I just like pack your stuff into a suitcase and then just and then just go? Because kind of. <laughs> there must be more to it than that. It, it, it just seems way too easy. <laughs> so I'll, t- I'll tell you what the cliche is that happens yeah. um, to absolutely everyone is prior to doing it, you think there must be more to it than that. Yeah. I have to really plan this. And um, to varying degrees, people go down the rabbit hole of research. I must research travel mm. gear, travel equipment, travel everything. And at a certain point, you end up with zipped off trousers, which can be convertible shorts or trousers, and you look like Indiana Jones. Um you have these like moisture wicking shirts and uh for some reason you've been convinced that you must have a clothes drying line to hang above bathtubs and all this other stuff um and then after about a year most people realize that stuff is really good for backpackers (laughs) yeah and it is makes no sense at all for nomads 
And what works for nomads is really a suitcase and normal stuff, normal clothes, normal stuff that you work with, um, and not much else. Uh, it's a lot simpler than it seems. Oh, okay. Sick. Um, sorry, just give me two seconds. Some guy from DHL has just arrived to pick up a package, and I don't know what package he's talking about. Um, <laughs> give him everything. Give him everything, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, oh, this is a thing that I'm returning to Black Magic. So oh, what email. was it? They lent me a, a, well, one of the cinema cameras. Um, yeah. Oh, okay. Like. The courier will bring a manual waybill to be filled in by yourself with address. Okay, I need to fill in their address. Be right back. Two seconds. <laughs> no worries. Oh, we're okay. Yeah. Is he sorted? Oh, amazing. My housemate is Magical. sorted. Fantastic. Fantastic. All right. Uh, okay. So you, so, so, so you were saying... Yeah, you don't need, you don't need travel forward. gear. Okay. Yeah, you don't need uh, backpacking gear. You don't need travel gear. You don't need moisture-wicking sh- shirts or hiking equipment. You just need the stuff that you have around you right now, just less of it. Okay. So just like a suitcase for my stuff and then like my my usual laptop backpack, which is like a Thule 23-liter. That's yeah. I just use every day for my laptop and iPad and stuff. That's exactly what I have. And all this like lightweight, um, in all the popular backpacks you see on Kickstarter. Like, oh, yeah. Uh, oh, the trap pack. It's convertible. Yeah. It does this. And it has all these straps. <laughs> You don't want any of that. Yeah, uh, shit is heavy and wheels are useful. Do you know what I mean? Like suitcase with four wheels, because at the end of the day, the type of travel um, nomads do, which involves a tremendous amount of work, mm. is typically going airport to taxi to apartment or house, mm. unpacking, getting comfortable, and then living there for a longer period of time, one month, two months, three months. Yeah. And so you have your everyday carry backpack, which is just normal stuff. But yeah. for your actual sort of life, yeah, suitcase, wheels. You're going through airports and taxis. Like you're not going through the Himalayas. There's yep. no Wi-Fi in the Himalayas. Um, okay. It's it's so much more simple than um, people sort of get, get all hyped and prepared for. Okay, interesting. Um, and in terms of like when you were backpacking and stuff, would you have like a daily routine for like kind of work and then other stuff, or would you sort of fit working around just whatever other stuff you were doing? Um, you can kind of do whatever you want. It sort of depends, I think, on um, type of business you have, how many people are dependent on you, what time zones those people work in, yeah. when they need you to be around. Okay. I think the more you uh, work by yourself, for yourself, um, without team members, the more fast and loose you can play with this. So Peter, for example, um, answers to no one, has no one who answers mm-hmm. to him, and he takes great pleasure in that. That's a whole part of uh, what he enjoys and why he structures his life and his businesses the way he does. So he can disappear for a week if he wants, and then he can just work... 18 hours a day for a week after that if he wants um for me at this point i've got a team of 22 uh spread across all different sorts of time zones i have meetings internal external partners customers um i need more structure so it's a much i have much more of a normal routine than um than probably most others and i think the more yeah i don't know depends on the work Uh, how, how often do you have meetings with your team so I've, got, I've, I've currently got like two and a half other people in my team, like two full-times and one part-time. And yeah. at, at some points we've tried doing like weekly meetings and it's kind of been helpful, but then it just kind of falls by the wayside because I forget to do it one day. And, like, <laughs> and then there are some people that say, oh, all meetings are a waste of time. And then there are some people that say, I have a daily stand-up. Like how, how do you do it, Sash? How would you recommend giving it a go? Um, I'm not a big fan of meetings in general. I have more of them now than ever before but sort of getting to a size where that's inevitable to some extent i think all meetings have to have a a purpose a reason for doing them i really hate um 
daily stand-ups where it's just like we're showing up to a meeting but no one there may not be a purpose to it we're just hoping that every day there may be some purpose yeah. that spontaneously falls out of the meeting by the act of doing it yeah. i don't i don't like those i think they're a waste of time most of the time um so i think a clear purpose is is one to have a meeting for me at the moment i have um five direct reports who i have a one-to-one with every two weeks then i have um two or three team meetings a week okay and we have one what we call water cooler which is a weekly meeting but it has absolutely has deliberately no agenda by design it is mm. just a zoom hangout for the team and that's because otherwise you never see anyone you never talk to people you're just with them slack 24 hours a day and you mm. never like figure out who people are or get to hear them laugh or do anything so it's more of a uh you know we do quizzes or uh do online mass multiplayer pictionary and snake okay. and things like that just as a bit of a team bonding thing um okay. and it, and it yeah doesn't... but i think change often if something's not working change it that's what we okay. really stick to and do you have do you have like goals and metrics and kpis and stuff as a company that you're working towards or do you not subscribe to that agenda uh, that style of doing stuff um we do but we don't um they don't run um everything if that makes sense so we we have goals, or sorry, we have metrics and KPIs that we keep an eye on mm. as an indicator of things going well, things going poorly. That could be, you know, how many signups are we getting, yeah. how much is revenue growing. Uh, but we don't have goals for those metrics to hit. It's not like we need to grow signups from 600 a day to 1,000 yeah. a day, or we need to grow revenue from X to Y. It's okay. Those numbers are at a certain level, and we keep an eye on them as an indicator of health. Our goals are more, what do we want to accomplish? What do we want to produce? And that will be more rooted in... Uh, for us, product decisions. What do we mm. want to build? What features are interesting? What do we want Ghost to allow people to be able to do um, that excites us? And what requests are we hearing from customers? Those are kind of where the goals come from, is okay. um, le- less pure data-driven. I think you can you can lose a lot of character in being solely data-driven. Um, obsessing over a numbers increase all the time it typically doesn't lend itself to creativity it just lends itself to insanity ah okay that's interesting yeah because i've i've started reading all these like businessy type books and i'm reading one called mastering the rockefeller habits at the moment and that's all about oh, kind I of priorities and uh, sort of your five priorities <clears throat> your one main priority and seems to espouse having metrics to track you know that's that standard thing of what gets measured gets managed um and i've all, always been a bit like I'm not sure to what the, to what extent this a this is the sort of business I would want to run where we're obsessing over metrics that are outside of our control ultimately, and b I'm not sure to what extent it's actually helpful to think about okay I need to hit two million subscribers by the next month or in, and instead have more goals that focus on like the things we can control that you know as long as as long as we're putting out two decent videos a week that's all we care about yeah I think numbers are in my experience they're helpful when they're relative which is to say if you are observing changes in patterns so you got a thousand signups uh, on new subscribers last mm. month <laughs> sorry let's be more realistic about <laughs> ten thousand a hundred thousand new subscribers last month yeah you got ten thousand a hundred new subscribers this month everything's fine yeah cool um if if that suddenly drops off you know a thousand new subscribers this month or you know perhaps you go full gabby hannah and you numbers are tanking and yeah. you are going to freak out about it uh that's something worth paying attention to but does it matter if you one million two million next week or in next month or next year does that matter i'm not sure i think i think maybe your goals are better served in uh, thinking about the types of things you want to make uh, the types of content you want to produce the types of interactions you want to have with your audience and the types of guests you want to have on the channel what excites you mm. i think those 
are what drive forward what you do. And then the numbers are an indicator of whether or not it's working. They are telling you this is going well, this is going poorly. Um, it's a health metric. Oh, is it nice. is it working or not working? Um, but different people have different approaches, right? There's there's lots of things you can do. Yeah. But I I think there's when you get into tech and business advice, there's a lot of you read about growth hacking. You know, conversion rate optimization. How do we get more clicks and yeah. um, get people through the funnel? And most of it's just bullshit. It's just the best way to get people through the funnel is to make something they want. And the best way to make something they want is to talk to them and have a good idea and to work on that idea. Like whether the button is blue or red or mm. says sign up now or get started. Um, those things are law of diminishing returns. You can lose so much time there. And the stories you hear are typically written by people who are selling A-B testing software. Yeah. <laughs> They have something to gain by telling you that these yeah. techniques are the silver bullet. Um, when you talk to most people who are not selling A-B testing software, conversion rate optimization software, they'll say, nothing moved the needle, really. And then eventually we found this one thing that no one had written a blog post about okay. or given us advice about that worked. Okay. Um, so I think find your true north and what drives you and try and uh, use metrics as something, as a reference point, but not a be-all and end-all. Okay. How, how do you think about kind of what drives you in terms of ghost like do you have like a company vision company mission statement all of that company values all of that stuff yes but not you know we don't have a mission statement where i could say oh our mission is to yeah. <laughs> um empower the world's broad... creators to i don't know <laughs> yeah exactly but but broadly um what we're trying to do is fix fix publishing make publishing work again right and um Publishing encompasses everything. It encompasses okay. writing, podcasting, video creation. And the state of the world now um, is advertising is going away. It's drying mm. up. Google's eating it all. Facebook's eating it all. Journalism's not in a great state. Uh, independent creators are starting to come up and do all sorts of interesting stuff. Uh, you know, yourself being a great example of that. And many people like you trying to follow in your footsteps. Um, so what's the business model? How are we going to make this work? Advertising isn't doing nearly as much as it used to. Merch is kind of a good short-term thing that people try. Then there's lots and lots of money to be made with affiliate um, programs and referral stuff. But all of those are kind of, you don't control them. They're sources of income controlled by other people. Yep. So how do we um, solve publishing in the sense that people can build sustainable independent businesses around publishing where they can keep doing what they love? Yep. And um, that's a really, really interesting space. Um, and so what Ghost started with was solving um, writing and publishing on the internet, creating the website part and writing posts and putting them online. And what we've moved towards in, in the last year and a half or so is introducing memberships and subscriptions um, to allow people to own and launch their own, um, you know, their own Netflix, their own Spotify, their mm. own Patreon without depending on any outside party. So if you want to launch a paid newsletter or a paid community or a paid um, subscription of any description, um, that's what we're trying to solve. We're trying to be the Shopify of independent publishing uh, for subscription-based um, creators where you actually own the technology that you're using to build the business, unlike on something like Patreon where it's just yeah. ostensibly a social network that has money flowing through it rather than likes. So this shift towards, um, I don't know, the, uh, the membership kind of model, is it mostly aimed at like for at like individual creators? Because I imagine OpenAI and Tinder's blog and stuff are not really going to care about like the membership feature. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, very much towards individual creators, but also um, 
you know, smaller groups of, of publishers and uh, whoever builds the next BuzzFeed, the next Vice, the next yeah. um, media companies, um, those people as well. And you've got people like Ben Thompson who runs yeah. Stratechery, um, doing incredibly well off a one-person yeah. newsletter with tens of thousands of subscribers. Um, you've got things like the information uh, and the membership hmm. puzzle project. You've got the correspondent. Um, all of these new sites which are saying, actually, if you become a customer instead of an anonymous reader, we don't need to do clickbait. <laughs> we can do content that is actually valuable because yeah. we don't need to drive up our traffic to get more ad views, to get a few cents from advertisers. We can actually do good content. And that's what we've kind of lost in the last few years, right? Everything is clickbait. Everything mm. is um, drama because that's the only way to get views and views is never diminishing yeah. way to get advertising dollars and that cycle just goes downward and downward until we're in this fake news alex jones death spiral mm. and um the idea of memberships and subscriptions is to align the incentives of the publisher with the audience you must publish stuff that your audience care about and value because otherwise they will cancel and mm. if they cancel they you stop getting money so it aligns the incentives of you have to publish stuff that's valuable that's not clickbait where if your audience clicks on it and they they should be surprised by how it's better than what they were expecting not like a yeah. terrible headline that they want to close immediately yeah. and then you get to a place where it's an upward spiral of sustainability and uh, things getting better instead of worse okay um so this this uh, membership stuff is I've been thinking about it for a while. And then when you guys launched the memberships feature, I don't, I don't know when it was. I was like, oh, great. I, you know, this now makes it a lot more possible to do this rather than having to whip up another WordPress site and then plug in memberful or having to use Patreon, which has a vibe of please support me. I'm a starving artist type vibe. Um, <laughs> do you have any, any tips or a, a sort of tidbits that you've come across on uh, best practices for doing like a, a membership thing? Because th this is something that me and my, my team are, very actively thinking about at the moment yeah um so the most important thing i think is it has to give people value um mm. it has to you have to think of it as selling something it, I, what i um struggle with with the patreon model is so many people are just saying if you like these videos support what i'm doing it's like okay what am i getting in return like that's how a transaction works like there has to be something that gets that comes in return and there's so many things you you can offer in return but if you can establish a value um, of something people actually want and care about, mm. everything gets simpler. Um, now, for a lot of people, what works is extra content, behind the scenes footage. Yeah. Um, what musicians do very well is they have you know behind the scenes recording on a new album. Now, who wants to watch that? Not the broad audience. And this is what I would say really strongly works for the subscription model is don't go for the broad audience, go for the niche audience. Oh, okay. Don't go for your one million subscribers. Yeah. Um, go for your top 1000 subscribers maybe yeah. top 5000 subscribers yeah. your people who've been around since you did your first few videos and mm. are still here now what do they want because what they want is probably weird and niche and specific mm. and they just want to see stuff that nobody else cares about like hey ali let's see your whole audio setup what is that xlr plugged into what's your yeah. audio interface how are you doing your cable management in this studio? Um, yeah. A behind-the-scenes chat that where you can actually interact with everyone in the chat because there's not that many people in it. Yeah. Um, so what the the what tends to work best of all is to make your best content free. Mm. Use that to grow your audience. Make your best content free for everyone with the broadest appeal. Mm. And then for your niche content where you're like, I don't think everyone would like this. I'm not yeah. sure if this is on brand. That's usually the stuff that people that are the most interested. Mm. in what you're doing um 
are going to be interested in getting access to, particularly if it's something they can't get any other way. It has to be something that is not otherwise available that you're offering. Otherwise, they can just go and get it for free. Um, you know, if you if you started a, a new site and you start writing the same stories that the New York Times is publishing for free, um, hmm. why would anyone pay to subscribe? But if you start writing stories about uh, growing an independent YouTube channel to a million subscribers whilst going through uni and acing every exam you've ever seen, um, there's not a lot of other places you're going to get that content. Hmm. That's a good point. <laughs> okay. Um, well, one thing we were thinking of is, for example, with these live streams, um, having them clog up the channel, uh, it's pretty bad on the analytics because obviously a three-hour long video, two-hour long video doesn't get as many views as like a 10-minute sort of very well-produced one. And so we're thinking maybe one way of doing the membership thing is as one one of the offerings, kind of we still do these deep dives and live stream it on the channel and maybe keep it up for a week or so for people who missed it. But then we take it off the main channel and put it behind the membership paywall where, you know, if people want to, want to listen to a, a two-hour conversation about this sort of stuff after the fact, then they can see it through the membership stuff. Do you think that would be like a reasonable model for this sort of, for this sort of thing? Yeah, like your very own uh, curiosity stream, right? Yeah. <laughs> video brought to you by. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, that, that would work. Another model, uh, another structure I've seen people do that I think is pretty smart is they'll do, uh, you know, a 30-minute, 40-minute highlight edit. Yeah. And that's on the, the main channel. Oh, yeah. And it's yeah. short enough to get the engagement. 20, 30 minutes, you get the engagement, you get the analytics working mm. the way you want them to. At the end of the video, you say, for the full one-hour conversation, the full yeah. two-hour conversation, yeah. subscribers only. And so anyone who watches the full 20-minute video and they want more, hmm. um, that's an that's a really easy value. Like they're bought into, they're getting value from whatever conversation it is you're having with someone they're interested in. And now they can go and there's an, a way to get more. And if they're not interested, cool. They've You've just grown your audience because you've produced something that's analytics-friendly um, that still works within the context of the main channel. That's a very good idea. So <laughs> anyway, for example... <laughs> splicing up this this chat into i don't know 10 or five, 5 to 10 kind of actionable takeaways with like sort of well cut curated sound bites with like nice background yes. music and like b-roll and graphics and stuff um and then yeah, the whole so that's like what jre jre clips does right joe rogan cuts the sound bites of the most interesting things and he gives yeah. them titles that make you want to click right. so that when it says Russell Brand talks about why dogs are actually God. Yeah. Um, you're like, oh my God, what? And then that yeah. clip pulls you in, and then you want to see the, the whole episode. There's all sorts of ways you can do it. But Ah, interesting. On that note, have you come, in, uh, come across other kind of individual creators doing this sort of thing? W what other stuff are they, are they offering as like the value um, to the audience? The most, so the most common number one thing by far is newsletters, um, mm. which varies in, in format. But newsletters, this, this lovely... Uh, resurgence of what blogging used to be yeah. um, of writing to an audience where people reply and it's it feels sort of decentralized in a way and mm. you have the community it's not just the wild west of the internet yeah. um, and the second thing is, is kind of behind the scenes uh, stuff whether it's additional episodes for podcast or mm. additional videos that are behind the scenes that unseen footage um, then there's if there's people who are doing kind of tutorial content something I've seen work really well is to have the assets be available to members only. So if you do, oh, say, okay. a Lightroom tutorial or a, a video editing tutorial, you say, if you want the Premiere file or the Final Cut mm. Pro file, download them. Members get them all for free, get the original raw files, get the original footage. Uh, if there's some asset that goes with the thing you're teaching, um, that's a really um, good thing that works. And then the last kind of obvious thing is community. 
um, if you have something you're building a community around, whether mm. it's studying or entrepreneurship, and there's value in people connecting with one another, uh, then having membership be access to a community is something um, people are very willing and interested in being a part of typically. Yeah. Okay, sweet. Like those are all things along the lines of what we've got in the works on the slow burner to launch at some point. I expect I expect nothing less. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, one thing is so Ghost doesn't have community stuff built in by default. So we, we, we were going to use Circle. Have you come across Circle? Yeah, really interesting new new thing. Yeah. It's, is there a way of like hooking cool. hooking stuff together, uh, kind of ghost memberships plus then? Yeah, yeah there there absolutely is at, at the moment. The way to do that would probably be pretty janky and yeah, not like Zapier or IFTTT type uh, stuff. Or... Exactly, uh, they seem to be adding support for platforms based on demand. So I'd say, hmm. uh, you know, if you ask them, they'll probably get that on their roadmap. Um, it seems like they're very, you know, just getting started in the last month, basically. So I think. Uh, they're probably going to be gauging demand of what platforms have the most interest in people using Circle. It looks like a really interesting product. Um, it's a bit rough around the edges, but I think mm. conceptually it's a very good idea. I'm quite interested to see where it goes. Yeah, they. Uh, I had a chat with the guys who were who sort of when they were building it early stages. I think uh, almost a year ago, and I was just like, "Wow, this is this is cool. This is what I need for my <laughs> at yeah. some point in the future membership thing." <laughs> um, and I was thinking, "Oh, ghost memberships plus Circle community." plus behind-the-scenes footage, would actually make for a hopefully compelling proposition. Um, I think it would. How Do you ever, so slash, I, I guess maybe you had this in the past, but often I have a real fear of charging any amount of money for anything because I suppose part of me really worries that, you know, is what I'm selling actually legit? Is it just snake oil that I'm trying to convince people to buy and then it feels really weird to ask them for money? And then another part of me thinks, yeah, but a little bit, you know, a significant minority, vocal minority of my audience are students, especially from developing countries who are going to be like, bro, there's no way I can afford $10 a month. For this That's equivalent to a living wage annually in my country. Or, or whatever. So all of these things go through my head when I think about the prospect of charging money for stuff. Do you think about that at all? Um, <laughs> I think it's something everyone goes through as they uh, have an audience and they're trying to figure out how to navigate mm. structuring things in a way that feel fair to yeah. you and to um, your customers and also f make economic sense to make what you're doing sustainable you know because uh, if you give away everything for free but then you can't afford to keep doing what you're doing uh, ultimately your audience loses mm. if you can't keep going uh, so it's it's kind of as <laughs> you have to find the balance um, something I like and um, I'm going to be a little bit biased here but something I like about subscriptions mm. um, is I think they establish a relationship where you are forced to produce constant value at a lower price point and anyone can cancel at any time. Mm. So if you're selling, say, an ebook or a course and it's um, what's the typical price point? It's like one nine nine, two four nine, right? For a lot of lot of these uh, creators who are putting together that type of um, info product, mm. as it were. Whew, that's a hard sell. Like that's a lot of money. And okay, maybe there's a money back guarantee, but who's to say if it's worth uh, that amount or not, or if, or if people are going to get that amount of value from it. Mm. If you have a subscription that's $5 a month, someone tries it for a month, they decide it is valuable. Mm. And they, okay, well, they're going to, it's worth $5 to me. It's worth one meal, one coffee, one McDonald's, whatever. Yeah. I'm going to stay for another month. I'm going to stay for another month. Yeah. It's this way it, it solves itself because they can always cancel whenever they want if they decide it's not valuable to them. And the worst case scenario is they've lost $5 for the most recent month. The best case scenario is they stay a subscriber for years and you develop a relationship with them 
where they're a loyal customer to you and you value them being a loyal customer and they value um, what you're providing for okay. that subscription. And after a number of years, okay, they've paid $200. They've paid what you would have sold up front. Yeah. But it's been in an incremental way where they've been able to over and over again get the value and have an easy out if the value is not there. So for me, subscriptions just kind of make that thing go away because if you're not producing great stuff, yeah. people cancel. So you, you have to. Yeah, it's not like you're tricking them out of two four nine dollars and then <laughs> yeah you can't yeah, yeah you can't make you promises can't, you you can't really okay you have to really do it interesting um uh, yeah so uh, the that was another thing i wanted to ask you about like often i find that if if i'm talking to someone like noah kagan who's got like an eight-figure sort of software company or if i'm speaking to someone like tiago forte who runs like a sort of seven-figure online course i sometimes feel that maybe my own my own ambitions my own kind of what I what I'm aiming for is just too modest because I'm still thinking of like oh my god like I'm making x amount of money per month that's absolutely insane compared to what I would be making as a doctor therefore like this is the pinnacle and then I speak to someone who's like making 10 million a year 15 million a year like hmm wait a minute (laughs) um maybe I'm just not like aiming high enough but then there's another part of me is like well maybe I don't really want to aim, aim aim that high like your your company is sort of small in the grand scheme of you know smaller than wordpress and squarespace and stuff like do you ever get the sense of why are we not bigger why are we not kind of optimizing for growth at all costs that kind of vibe no absolutely not um but i know exactly what you mean i know so i I know loads of people like that as well right um i i look at um i evaluate people based on how happy they are more than um how much they make Uh, i think i know a lot of rich unhappy people okay um i know a lot of people who sold their companies and became very financially um successful Mm. And they're very, very depressed um, because their the company was something they loved and they sold it and they got rid of it and now they have lots of money. But they played the game. They bought the Lamborghinis. Mm. And sure enough, um, the thrill of that wore off a lot faster than they expected. And now they're left with the existential question which has gone unaddressed, which is, what do you do now? Yeah. Um, and I've seen that pattern play out so many different times. Um, so for me, I... I care more about um, the freedom I have. That's what I really optimize for. So to, as of today, Ghost has made about $8 million. Um, as By the end of this year, we'll hit $3 million annual recurring revenue. We've got a team of 22. Um, we can go after all the goals we want to go after. Um, we've been profitable since the first year in, in terms of sustainability and, and cash flow and everything. That's great for me. Um, and I scale my ambitions based on uh, what I wish the product could do and what impacts I wish it could have in terms of um, I want Ghost to be able to create an ecosystem of independent publishers and creators who can um, build their own businesses on top of the technology we've created. Um, and if I can do that whilst living on a boat, whilst traveling around the world, whilst having a group of humans that I get to work with who are just um, incredible and um have fun doing it uh that to me that is worth so much more than any arbitrary number that you could pluck out of the air um whether it's 10 million dollars or 100 million dollars or anything like that because you can't buy uh freedom and happiness really in that way and um i don't know it's easy to say and hard to do right and everyone will have a slightly different experience slightly different perspective on um what's right for them but I've, i would say you know try not to to compare yourself go for the mm. goals that feel meaningful to you 
versus the goals you see other people going for. Because the worst thing you could possibly do in life is strive to achieve someone else's definition of success and only to arrive there and realize that it's not yours. Um, so yeah, that would be my take. Nice. Um, so you, it's, it sounds like you're, it sounds like the way you think about the business that you're running, this ghost thing, uh, is very much about how can we make ghost the best product for, to, to allow people to do X or to, 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 to have an imp, a certain impact in, 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 in the sphere. Yeah. It's, uh, ha, ha, have you have you come across the book the uh, the elephant in the brain? I don't think I have. No. So that's about this idea that there are hidden motives to to everything that we do, and there's that quote that's often attributed to J.P. Morgan, which is that a man always has two reasons for doing anything: uh, a good reason and the real reason. Uh, and <laughs> when I read that, I really started kind of introspecting about kind of why I'm doing this YouTube thing, and maybe and what I worry about is that like sure a part of me is saying that i'm doing youtube because it's fun and it gets to help people and, and all that stuff but really the reason i'm doing youtube is because it makes me money and i wonder for you at what point did it or or has it switched from the i am building ghost because i want to build a sustainable business that makes money and sustains my lifestyle to switching to a more i'm building this thing because i care about the impact that it has on the world it's a good one um so i did an interesting thing um in this regard, which is that if we go all the way back um, to sort of around the beginning of this conversation, mm. that moment when I was sitting on the beach and thinking about what should I build and, okay, I don't need a big idea. Um, I, I went a step further and I inverted my previous goal. And my previous goal was I want to make a million dollars before I'm 30 or I want yeah. to build a million dollar company, let's say. Yeah. And I had tried, I tried lots of ideas to build a million dollar company and um, none of them worked. And when I realized that that's not what I needed to achieve my own definition of happiness. I flipped it and I said, "What? how would you structure a company if you deliberately tried not for it not to be a million dollar company? Mm. Like go out of your way to build something that would not be a million dollar company. What would you do? How would you structure it? And um, so you'd probably make it a nonprofit organization. So we did that. And you probably give people to the freedom to work wherever they wanted and not have an office and not you know, nine to five be locked into a cubicle. Uh, so we did that and probably want the technology to last and give the intellectual property away so that it would, even if the company disappears, the technology would still be around. Um, so did that. And by making it a nonprofit, um, we locked, we set the path as fixed so that the company can never be bought or sold. In fact, I don't own Ghost. I am a, a trustee of Ghost, which means I can steer it as an owner would. But um, if I ever get sick of it, I can't sell it. I don't own any yeah. shares. I don't own any part of it. Okay. I can pass my trusteeship to someone else to run the foundation, mm. but there is nothing I can gain from it. So I let go of the idea of needing, wanting or needing it to become a million dollar business and said, I'm just going to do this because I'm, I want to be stuck with it. And if you build a business that you want to be stuck with or you're going to be mm. forced to be stuck with, you can't sell it, you can't get rid of it. A lot of the decision-making changes. Suddenly, um, you don't think do things as a means to an end. You, don't, you can't convince yourself that if you work 18 hours for five years straight, um, you're going to sell the company and have a big payday. Mm. You guarantee no payday. So you, you think differently about what types of things you build and whether they're going to be a quick win and whether they're going to optimize for a sale or for an investor or for the customer, for the user. And so as soon as I let go of, of this notion of, uh, I don't want to say greed, but of um, huge success, that's when success started coming to me perversely. Yeah. That's when uh, the ideas that I 
put out into the world started resonating with an audience and started getting traction and the blog post started getting millions of views and the Kickstarter campaign started raising hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, that's when the ideas that I was having were interesting enough that they um, had some form of mass appeal. And so starting from the point of view of having that mission of the goals are about the products and the user and building the best thing possible was what led to the financial success, not the other way around. So there was, for at least for me, there was never a flip of the switch to first achieve financial success and then have bigger goals it was first make the bigger goals and if you do a good job of them financial success will follow um and you know maybe there's some abstracts parallel in uh successful youtubers um people who try and get the views and do things just for the views i have seen typically um don't do too well whereas people who are focused on the content and the ideas and what they're creating and are in it because that's what they love to do um typically an audience finds them and it's not the growth hacks and it's not the collabs and the channel swaps and the commenting it's mm. them doing something that so clearly resonates with an audience because they're doing it authentically not for the sake of getting um fame and success mm. i think yeah I really love that thing about kind of building the business that you want to be stuck with. Uh, I yeah. kind of read a similar thing, I think probably from Naval, his Twitter account or something like that, which is that, um, you know, ha happiness is when you figure out a way to keep doing the stuff that you want to be doing. <laughs> and yeah. if, you can, if you can build a business that you want to be doing and figure out a way to keep on doing it, that is very much kind of long-term thinking. And yes, I suppose that's the case for me and, and this YouTube channel as well. Like, well, a lot of times people ask me, oh, so what's next? Are you going to try and go to TV or something? I'm like, God, no, of course not. <laughs> Why the hell would I do that? <laughs> I feel like... But that's such a trend yeah. now. It's so weird. <laughs> I don't understand it. Like all the, you know, all the Liza Koshies and all these people, they, I don't know, they grew up with TV and love TV. Mm. But it's like all the people from a TV world, like the Casey Neistats, are all going, oh my God, no, YouTube is the thing now. Yeah. Like, forget TV. Yeah. But there's still like the younger generation of YouTubers who uh, still have this fantasy of being on TV. But it's interesting. You don't. Yeah, no, absolutely not. I just want to, I think w what I've realized is that I like this thing and I like teaching people and I like teaching people on the internet. And it, as as long as I can keep on doing it for as long as possible, then, or as, as long as it stays interesting, then that'll be a win in my book. Thank you very much. This has been a lot of fun. Um, where yes, can people learn course. more about you slash any, anything you would like to plug to to the audience who still might be watching <laughs> yeah so if you are interested in in doing things like ali does or building your own audience um your own publication perhaps or video or podcast things like that uh, check out ghost it's um it's great for for doing all the things that we've talked about so that's ghost.org if you want to find me uh, the best place to find me and my meanderings is probably twitter at john o'nolan and um go from there i don't know i have a love-hate relationship with twitter sometimes i'm on it yeah. a lot and sometimes <laughs> i'm on it not at all for my own sanity but it has links to all the useful useful places fair dues. all right well thank you very much and we've got links to all of your stuff including a link to ghost in the video description so if anyone you want to build your own website go for it and i'll be doing a video at some point called how to build a website from scratch or something and it'll be based around around this and what awesome. i've been doing with mine for the last like five years so thanks john it's been a real pleasure thank you everyone for tuning Likewise. in and we will catch you next time 
That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on the Apple Podcasts website if you're not using an iPhone. There's a link in the show notes. If you've got any thoughts on this episode or any ideas for new podcast topics, we'd love to get an audio message from you with your conundrum, question, or just anything that we could discuss. Yeah, if you're up for having your voice played on the podcast and your question being the springboard for our discussion, email us an audio file mp3 or voice note to hi at notoverthinking.com. If you've got thoughts but you'd rather not have your voice played publicly, that's fine as well. Tweet or DM us at nOverthinking on Twitter, please. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.